Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to thank our witnesses uh, for appearing today to discuss a topic of growing concern, and that is the uh, worsening political and humanitarian situation in Libya. Many of the reports coming out of Libya are troubling, and recent developments warrant attention. Libya is in the midst of its third civil war in nine years. This latest round of uh, conflict was triggered last year uh, when uh, Kalia Haftar, commander of the self-proclaimed Libyan National Army, launched an offensive against the UN-recognized government in Tripoli just days before the UN was set to launch a carefully constructed peace conference. Months of fighting between this, his LNA and the uh, internationally recognized government of national accord, the GNA, have failed to yield tangible results on the ground, and it remains a stalemate. Foreign influence has only complicated matters, as usual, and continues to flood Libya with illegal arms and advisory support and training, and all in direct violation of UN arms embargo. These outside actors uh, have a variety of reasons for their involvement, and all of them, from the Middle East to Europe, often pursue their agendas at the expense of the Libyan people. Chief among these actors are Turkey and Russia. Turkey has deployed uh, uniformed troops and questionable Syrian-based militias to Libya in an effort to pursue its own agenda. The GNA recently signed a troubling agreement with Turkish President Erdogan that threatens to rewrite the exclusive economic zones of both countries, uh, challenging, uh, uh, challenging gas exploration and the construction of the pipelines between Greece, Israel, and Cyprus. Erdogan clearly intends to extend his military assistance to Libya as a means to cement Turkish economic influence and political control over the eastern Mediterranean. Russia fighting on the side of Haftar has dramatically increased the number of uh, Wagner mercenaries operating in Libya. And as we see in Syria, Russia seeks to secure its foothold in the Mediterranean and extend its sphere of political influence into the Middle East and North Africa. Again, following a Syrian model, Putin floods Libya with mercenaries and weapons while he simultaneously attempts to supplant the UN-led political process through sham peace talks. We have serious concerns about a Russian foothold in the southern Mediterranean where the Kremlin controls the flow of refugees and migrants, complicates our CT mission, sows discord within the EU, and ambushes an already beleaguered UN political process. Finally, there's the human cost. The fighting has killed over 2,000 Libyans with over 150,000 displaced. Military activity recently forced the UN to close its refugee center. The United States remains concerned about a very real terrorist threat, particularly ISIS, emanating from Libya. ISIS has taken advantage of the instability and increased its activity in southern Libya. In addition to CT, the U.S. is concerned with seniority in an increasingly militarized Mediterranean, a vital corridor for international trade. Our NATO allies in Europe remain concerned that migration and terrorism will further destabilize their countries, causing the kind of disorder that Russia wants and will exploit. Third, the stability of Libya's natural resources is a concern for Libya's state, sake for the, uh, and for global markets. Oil remains Libya's most important avenue to prosperity. Disappointingly, Haftar has dramatically reduced Libya's oil supplies in an effort to undermine the GNA. Aligned with these national security interests, U.S. policy should be to proceed along three tracks. Three tracks. Support the U.N.-recognized government, discourage foreign powers from meddling in Libya's affairs, and encourage a return to U.N.-led peace talks. 
The German-led dialogue convened in January was promising. However, countries continue to violate the arms embargo, and the ceasefire has been punctuated by violence. The most effective way to stop foreign involvement in Libya is to end the conflict. I agree with the administration and UN's call for countries to live up to their Berlin commitments and to comply with their obligations to implement the UN arms embargo. We must also consider the appropriate scope of U.S. involvement in Libya. As we explore the right tools to support a stable, peaceful Libya, I hope our witnesses will shed additional light on what leverage the United States has to affect a better outcome. And uh, I know the ranking member has uh, strong feelings in this regard, and I will yield the floor to you. Uh, thank, thank you, Mr. You. Chairman. Uh, let me first uh, welcome Senator, since this is the first full committee hearing we've had, welcome Senator Perdue back to the uh, committee. And uh, you've had a more privileged position before, but uh, we're glad to see you uh, back. So welcome again. Uh, and Mr. Chairman, I recognize the start of this year has been somewhat unusual, so I want to thank you for holding today's hearing. There is a lot of important work for us to do and a full agenda for hearings for this committee. In particular, I look forward to working with you on a hearing on Iran policy, as we have discussed and agreed, as well as getting hearings scheduled as soon as possible with Secretary Pompeo and Administrator Green to review the state and USAID FY21 budget requests. Those budget hearings are vital for the exercise of our oversight authorities. As you know, I've been eager for the committee to take a more assertive role in understanding the administration's policy towards Libya. As I see it, the administration's approach to Libya is emblematic of its overall approach to foreign policy, an absence of U.S. leadership, inconsistent public statements, and a seeming internal lack of clarity have left our partners and allies confused about the U.S. commitments and paved the way for our adversaries to advance their own interests. Military strongmen, militias, tribal politics, migration patterns, smuggling networks, and proxy actors have beleaguered Libya for years. There are no easy answers. But I'm not even sure today what questions the administration is asking, or if they're asking any at all. What are the factors driving our policy? In early April 2019, Secretary Pompeo expressed deep concern about Khalifa Haftar's military offensive against the internationally recognized and United States-supported Government of National Accord. Two weeks later, following reports of attacks on civilians and possible war crimes, the White House reported that President Trump had directly praised Haftar and discussed a shared vision for Libya's future in a telephone call. In the meantime, the United States joined Russia to block a British-drafted UN Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire, a reduction of negative foreign influence, and supporting humanitarian access. What message does this send to our allies? More than 150,000 people have been displaced. Thousands have been killed. There are reports about potential war crimes and violations of humanitarian law. More than 700,000 migrants and refugees are stranded in Libya held captive by violence and questionable political agreements that effectively prevent them from seeking recourse. And because of ongoing security concerns, UNHCR was recently forced to cease operations at a facility serving highly vulnerable refugees. Haftar and his backers, including the Emiratis, Egyptians, and others, have targeted hospitals and migrant detention centers. And Russia, as it so often does when the United States has ceded leadership, has recently increased its presence, deploying mercenaries from the infamous 
Wagner Group. With the United States equivocating and the European Union split, Turkey has found a deepened foothold for its longstanding ambitions in the Mediterranean. In November, Turkey and the GNA announced an expanded maritime agreement that critical U.S. partners, including Greece and Cyprus, called illegal and absurd. The parameters of this agreement undermine U.S. policies, partnerships, and security in the Eastern Mediterranean. Turkey's deployment of troops, including from Syria, adds to the list of violations of the U.N. arms embargo. Our absence is a declaration of policy itself. So I'm hopeful that today we will gain a clear understanding of what this administration believes our interests are in Libya, what our objectives are, and what concrete plans the administration has to achieve them. First, fundamentally, I believe we must work with our partners to reduce the influx of weapons and proxy fighters and ensure that Libya does not once again become a home for international terrorist organizations seeking fertile ground to regroup, reconstitute, and threaten the United States or our partners. Second, we also have an interest in upholding the integrity of international humanitarian law and UN arms embargoes. If we fail to hold our ostensible partners accountable, we are sending a devastating message that the United States will not use our diplomatic voice or leverage to uphold the integrity of the international system. Yesterday's vote in the Security Council, however, was a welcome step. Additionally, we must look beyond Libya's borders to ensure that our partners, allies, and adversaries alike know that the United States will stand by its commitments, will embrace the international institutions and systems of governance we have fought for, and still invest in promoting our own interests and security. As in Syria, Russia and Turkey are eagerly stepping into the void that this administration's equivocation and diplomatic retreat creates. They are creating in Libya a world conducive to their interests and values, not ours. And that is a much bigger problem than just Libya itself. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, for members, uh, we're, we are challenged a bit this morning in that we have four votes uh, starting at 1030. And uh, after discussions uh, with the ranking member, uh, we've uh, concluded it would probably be best to take a break uh, at the conclusion of vote number one so we can go down and uh, vote on the first and the second, and then we'll come back here, and then after that, rotate out um, and continue on. We also have an all-members briefing on the coronavirus outbreak at, at 1130 uh, in uh, Senate Dirksen 4.30. It'd be my intent, though, to continue on with this uh, hearing. I think most of us have been in a number of those briefings, but anyone who has to attend that uh, will certainly understand. So with that, uh, let's turn to our witnesses. and. Uh, First of all, we'll have David Schenker, and David is the Assistant Secretary of the Bureau for Near Eastern Affairs. Prior to joining the Department of State from 2006 to 2019, Mr. Schenker was Director of the Program on Arab Politics at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. From 2002 to 2006, he served as, in the office of the Secretary of Defense as uh, Levant uh, Country Director, advising the Pentagon on issues relating to Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and the Palestinian territories. Mr. Schenker, you're up. Thank you, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. Uh, I'm honored to appear before you today to discuss Libya. Uh, the U.S. has a few interests in Libya. Consolidating counterterrorism gains, maintaining the free flow of oil, blunting a Russian strategic foothold on NATO's southern flank. We also have a keen interest in a negotiated solution to Libya's civil war. Libya is geographically proximate to Europe. It poses direct immigration and security challenges to Europe. While the U.S. will pursue its interests, it is up to the Europeans to undertake their share of the work. 
Thus, we are heartened when Germany established the Berlin process. The best way to advance our interests is to stop the fighting and escalating foreign intervention, resulting from the LNA, the Libyan National Army's attack on Tripoli. Now is the time to wind the conflict down. Nearly 700 Libyan civilians have died since these clashes began in April 2019. Nearly 200,000 children were unable to attend school. Civil aviation has been under constant threat. Hundreds of thousands of Libyans, as well as migrants and refugees, have been displaced. The near total shutdown of Libya's oil sector since January 17th by LNA-aligned forces has created a looming humanitarian disaster and to date deprived Libya of a billion dollars in oil revenues. The National Oil Corporation must be allowed to operate without interference by armed groups. There is no durable military solution to the conflict. The U.S. supports the U.N. Special Representative's work to promote a, Libya, a Libyan political process. Last week, uh, the U.N. Special Representative of the Secretary General, with strong support from the United States, convened representatives from the GNA and the LNA for the first time in a year the two sides have engaged on establishing a sustainable ceasefire. Negotiations among Libyans need to address difficult issues. The dismantling of non-state armed groups, militias that operate with impunity, the rooting out of extremist elements, and the reunification and reformation of Libya's economic institutions to ensure equitable distribution of Libya's resources. If the violence continues, it will only mean hardened positions on all sides. Bringing the Libyans back to the negotiating table has been complicated by the involvement of external actors. Libya is not the place for Russian mercenaries or fighters from Syria, Chad, and Sudan. It's not the place for Emiratis, Russians, or Turks to fight battles through intermediaries they sponsor or support with sophisticated weapons in pursuit of their own agendas. Peace and stability across the Mediterranean are at stake. Last month, I accompanied Secretary Pompeo to the Berlin Conference. The Secretary told leaders there, I quote, there are things we can do today to foster a stable, sovereign, united country that is inhospitable to terrorists and one day capable of generating prosperity um, through its energy resources. We must support a sustainable ceasefire between Libyan parties and not just with words. We must take actions to end the violence and flow of arms. In Berlin, leaders called for a ceasefire supported by UN monitoring and rejected foreign interference. Regrettably, some participants have not upheld their commitments. All made a commitment, however, to halt deployments of personnel, fighters, mercenaries, and military equipment. Following Berlin, we've joined our voice at the UN Security Council in support of a draft resolution reinforcing the UN arms embargo and calling for mercenaries, such as those of, of the Kremlin-linked Wagner Group, to live, leave Libya. We have sanctioned spoilers, threatening Libya peace uh, and security and stability, and we will continue to make use of sanctions when warranted. In 2016, the United States cooperated with the GNA to oust ISIS from the coastal city of Sirte. U.S. stabilization assistance aims to prevent a resurgence of these terrorist groups. U.S. diplomatic engagement with Libyans is centered in Tunisia, the temporary home of the Libya external office, the LEO. Our diplomatic representation to Libya, led by Ambassador Richard Norland and supported by an excellent expeditionary dipl uh, diplomatic team. Although security concerns have kept us from reestablishing full-time diplomatic presence in Libya, we continue to review options to deliver our message from Libya's, Libyan soil, including with day trips. Since the overthrow of the Qaddafi regime, the U.S. has invested more than $550 million in assistance in Libya, as well as more than $164 million in uh, humanitarian assistance. 
U.S. humanitarian response programs support several actors, sectors, including health, food, water, sanitation, and hygiene, protection, and shelter. And we'll continue to use these vehicles together to bring actors together on both sides of the conflict to mitigate the effects of the conflict on the Libyan people. We will continue to press upon Libyan leaders and countries involved in Libya that the only viable path forward is a peaceful resolution that provides inclusive democratic governments. Um, thank you for this opportunity to testify today. Thank you very much. Uh, now we'll hear from uh, Christopher Robinson. Uh, Mr. Robinson is the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the State Department's Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. He's an experienced diplomat with over 23 years of experience as career foreign officer. Uh, Mr. Robinson is well-placed to speak to Russia's equities in the Libya conflict, having recently served as Minister Counselor for Political Affairs, the U.S. Embassy uh, in Moscow, uh, as well as Deputy Director for Russian Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Mr. Robinson. Good morning, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee. It's a pleasure to be here today with Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs to discuss U.S. policy towards Libya. Russia is a determined and resourceful competitor to the United States. The Kremlin seeks to use military power and proxy actors to impose its will on nations seeking to assert their independence and sovereignty. Ukraine is the most egregious example where in 2014, Russia invaded and occupied Crimea and then used mercenaries and its own army to foment a conflict in the Donbass. Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 and continues to interfere in the affairs of its neighbors. In 2015, Russia expanded its reach to Syria, where its military and political support of the Assad regime, including sheltering the regime from accountability for its use of chemical weapons, has fueled a conflict that has cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians and forced millions to flee Syria. Libya now risks becoming the next venue for Russia's malign efforts to exploit international conflicts for its own narrow political and economic gain. As Undersecretary for Political Affairs David Hale testified before this committee last December, our diplomats are seized with countering Russian adventurism in Africa, where Russia's actions exacerbate instability and undermine U.S. interests. In Libya, as Undersecretary Hale pointed out, we have called out Russia's destabilizing policies, including its use of proxy actors like the Wagner Group, which is under U.S. sanction. Secretary Pompeo, made clear during last month's Berlin conference that all participants, including Russia, must abide by the UN's arms embargo on Libya. In recent months, Russia's surge of mercenaries supporting the attack by Libyan National Army on Tripoli has led to a significant escalation of the conflict and a worsening of the humanitarian situation. Wagner is often misleadingly referred to as a Russian private military company, but in fact, it is an instrument of the Russian government which the Kremlin uses as a low-cost, low-risk instrument to advance its goals. Russian military support has emboldened General Haftar to continue his destabilizing offensive. External support to the Libyan parties, including Russia's military support of Haftar, is the primary factor allowing the conflict to drag on and metastasize into a broader proxy war. Russia's direct involvement in the conflict exacerbates instability as Moscow seeks to access to military facilities and resources in Libya with ramifications, ramifications for southern Europe. Moscow may seek to use an enhanced presence in Libya as a platform to expand its malign influence in Africa and across the Mediterranean. By bringing the GNA and LNA to Moscow in January, the Kremlin showed it seeks to create parallel diplomatic tracks 
which would sideline the United Nations and advance narrow Russian interests. However, the reduction in violence that came into effect in January has begun to fray. For the United Nations to succeed in converting the shaky truce into an enduring ceasefire, external parties must uphold the commitment they made in Berlin to freeze deployments of personnel and equipment. So far, the external actors involved in Libya, and especially Russia, have not followed through on this commitment. Since 2011, the UN support mission in Libya has had an international mandate to promote conflict resolution and to support a political solution, efforts that Moscow increasingly undermines. The United States, on the other hand, supports these international efforts, particularly by focusing on economic and security dialogue among Libyans to achieve tangible, practical solutions. The administration is engaged in a range of actions to blunt Moscow's efforts to exert malign influence in Libya. It is not too late for Moscow to change course and genuinely support a political settlement. We will continue to call out Russian interference in Libya. The Kremlin is mistaken if it thinks using mercenaries to provide a deniability for its reckless policies. Our engagement is also demonstrated through the sanctions we have imposed on the Wagner Group and its owner, Putin crony, Yevgeny Prigozhin. In keeping with the administration's approach to burden sharing, we are actively pressing for our European allies to also sanction Wagner and Prigozhin. Russia needs to understand that it cannot act with impunity to destabilize Libya. Thank you for this opportunity, and I look forward to our discussions this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll go to a round of questions. We'll start with Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. Uh, uh, Secretary Schenker, looking at the quotes behind me, can you understand that there's confusion regarding our policy? Can you please state uh, unequivocally whether the United States supports Heftar's ongoing campaign to take over Tripoli? Thank you, Senator. Uh, I can say unequivocally the United States recognizes uh, the DNA, um, as does the rest of the international community. We do not support uh, the Haftar offensive uh, on Tripoli. Uh, I think these statements uh, are actually consistent. Haftar has at times been a counterterrorism partner for the United States in Libya. And while uh, we see many of his actions uh, having been counterproductive, we see Haftar as part of the problem, but also necessarily as part of the solution. Uh, and we are encouraging him to participate in the so you, negotiation. So you don't, so the administration does not support his ongoing campaign to take over Tripoli, right? Correct. Now, let me move to the comment you just made that in some respects he's viewed as someone who has fought uh, against, uh, 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 you know, uh, threats uh, by, by those who we would be concerned of. Some of his backers assert that he's a saving grace against would-be jihadists who threaten the entire continent. However, it was the GNA with support of the United States who ousted ISIS from Sirte. And while there are very few totally clean hands all around, there are credible reports that Haftar has enlisted Salafi militias to fight alongside him. So can you point to clear instances of threats from Islamists that Haftar or the LNA have neutralized? Uh, not in this forum, but he has cooperated with us in instances on the ground. Okay, so I, I would love to have 
whatever the forum is necessary to understand that uh, more clearly because uh, I don't get it quite, quite, quite clearly, so I'd look to follow that up with you. Have U.S. officials engaged directly with Haftar, and what is your message to him? Absolutely, uh, Senator. Uh, since uh, August of 2019, when Ambassador Norland was confirmed, uh, he has met with Haftar four times, our uh, charge at the LEO, uh, has met, uh, Josh Harris has met with Heftar once, uh, uh, Victoria Coates at the National Security Council has met with him several times. Um, we are engaged with him, yes, we, uh, we meet with him, we talk with him. What is your Sirach. message to him? Uh, the message to him is to engage in the UN-led political process uh, by Hassan Salama to stop the offensive on Tripoli, uh, and that's the, the primary message. And what's the response he gives you to those messages? Uh, it's not been um, uh, to this point uh, exactly as we had hoped, uh, but uh, Basically, we are engaged. He's, he's rejected all your messages. Uh, he did not sign on to the Berlin uh, communique, uh, which was the 55-point communique that talked about an, an association of violence. So what does Heftar have to show for his advances other than increased proxy involvement in the country? Uh, Heftar controls basically 70 5% of the territory uh, through a, uh, an agglomeration of militias that he has put together, that is this called <laughs> LNA, uh, but he does not control, but uh, this territory does not comprise but half the population. Now, the, the French Ministry of Armed Forces confirmed in July that France had initially purchased U.S. manufactured Javelin anti-tank missiles recovered from militia forces aligned with Heftar. Credible reports have indicated that Emirati air support, including through the use of Chinese manufactured drones, has targeted hospitals and migrant centers in Libya. Russia, as we've already discussed in some of your testimony, uh, speaks to, has deployed mercenaries on behalf of Heftar. Turkey has deployed Syrian troops to fight on behalf of the GNA. So what engagement have you had with the major external players on military and logistical support they're providing? Because I have to tell you, in my conversations with some of the representatives of these countries here, they tell me, well, why are you complaining the U.S. supports Heftar? Sir, we've uh, engaged uh, evolved countries to de-escalate. Uh, we've asked uh, the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, uh, and Egypt to use their influence through the, the GNA and the LNA to support the UN Joint Military Commission. Uh, I don't, I can't speak to the providence of the equipment that, uh, that was used uh, by, allegedly used by the UAE uh, in terms of drones. I uh, don't believe they're American. Um, but we are requiring of all recipients of U.S. origin defense equipment to abide by their end use. But we have major players for which we have relationships with and we're not pressing them. We are pressing them. Uh, it every it doesn't seem so. Agent. When I talk to them, they tell me, I don't know why you're complaining, Senator. Uh, they, uh, the U.S. tells us they're with Heftar. Anyhow, I'll stop there, but it's something to be pursued. I have other questions for later. Thank you. Uh, Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to just pick up, uh, first of all, where uh, Ranking Member Menendez uh, was going, which is that, that there is confusion, I think, on the part of a lot of people as to what the 
posture of the United States is with regards to the two uh, factions that are uh, going at each other uh, in, uh, in Libya. Uh, the sense of what we've heard from the President is he's inclined to support Haftar. The sense of the State Department is that they're inclined instead to support the, the government. Uh, it, uh, are we speaking with one voice yet? I mean, is the, is, are the President and the, the State Department on the same page? Is there, is there consistency in point of view? And if there is, can we communicate that better to the world and to the people in Libya? Uh, thank you, Senator. There, there is no division. Uh, there is one U.S. policy on Libya. Uh, we support the GNA. Uh, we recognize the GNA. Um, the, uh, the, the GNA, the, the LNA is a force on the ground, and we, uh, we deal with them, we engage with them. Um, the policymaking process is messy at times. I think we've seen that in the past, but we are all on the same page as far as uh, our push for a stable and secure Libya, a support to uh, an immediate end to the fighting, an end to external influence, uh, and an involvement of uh, foreign mercenaries in the conflict. Uh, we all support Hassan Salama's efforts. We are working um, with the UN. We are supporting the Berlin process. The secretary was in Berlin uh, with the National Security Advisor, um, both attending this conference, sponsored by Angela Merkel. The president spoke with Angela Merkel about Libya a few weeks ago. Uh, we are all on the same page. I, I think recently we've, we've heard uh, a number of people point out, I think correctly, that it is the president who sets foreign policy, not the, uh, the State Department uh, or anybody else. It's the president's choice, and I think it would be helpful if, if uh, the president's posture with regards to Libya were communicated on a, on a, uh, on a global basis, uh, such that there was real confidence among our allies and, and those in the region as to where we stand. Uh, what, what, what do you believe our objective is with regards to uh, Haftar? What, what do we hope uh, that we want to him, get him to do? What, as, as we look down the road, uh, are we looking for him to be part of a coalition government? Are we looking to a, a division of some kind? Uh, what are we trying, are we looking to him, for him to be defeated militarily? What, what, what are we trying to uh, aim to do with, with Haftar? Thank you. It is up to the people of Libya to determine the future of Libya and what their future government looks like. Uh, of course, but what, are, what would we like to see with regards to, to the, this, this conflict between the two? Well, we want to see the GNA continue uh, in the process. Uh, right now, the mediation that is being sponsored, the five plus five military talks, uh, being led by Hassan Salama in, um, in Geneva uh, with five representatives on the military side. Uh, from uh, the LNA, five from the GNA, uh, to talk uh, to further consolidate uh, this de-escalation, turn it into a durable ceasefire, and engage uh, in a political process that involves what Hassan uh, Salama uh, describes as the 13 plus 13 plus 13 plus 1, basically a broad spectrum of Libyan political actors getting together and talking about these difficult issues the, um, that have driven the conflict, the, the, the equitable distribution of oil resources, the status of militia in the country, uh, and, um, and the role of political Islam in Libya. And okay. this is all for Libyans to determine. 
Thank you. Uh, Mr. Robinson, uh, it is not lost on uh, us that, that uh, the Russians have learned from the experience of Iran, which is est establishing uh, proxies that can go out and do things that you can say, well, it really wasn't us, uh, that that has a certain impact. Uh, they're not guided by uh, necessarily Geneva Accords. They're not guided by UN resolutions. They're not guided by foreign policy, uh, if you will, headline foreign policy of their countries. Uh, Russia's doing that now with impunity. What what are we to do as it relates to these this militia effort, militia? Excuse me, this mercenary effort uh, on the part of Russia. How are we to, to counter that? Uh, because we're going to see it. Obviously, you pointed out we've seen it at least twice. How, how are we going to deal with this as we go forward? What can we do to reduce its impact? Thank you, Senator. Um, you are correct. The, the Russia's use of, of proxy actors that it claims will be that it seeks plausible deniability when, when their deniability is not plausible uh, is not just a challenge in Libya, but is a challenge that we see expanding around the world, whether sub-Saharan Africa, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, we see Russia increasingly resort to this to achieve its, its malicious foreign policy goals. And so we have raised this directly with Moscow, that Russia's increasingly use of proxy actors, particularly private military contractors, threatens strategic stability uh, globally. We have used sanctions in order to reduce their ability to operate, particularly Prigozhin and the Wagner network. Uh, we are working with our allies so that they also place these groups under, uh, under sanction. And importantly, to call out these activities, to publicly attribute them to the Russian government so that they cannot seek deniability. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you both for your, for your service. The United Nations arms embargo uh, is in place and has been violated by many players. So list for us who are the major violators of the UN arms embargo, uh, which of course we have to, the next step is to enforce that and if they're violating it, why do we think it's gonna be different with the next embargo that is passed by the United Nations Security Council? Who's number one on the list? Well, I don't, there are a broad range of violators and I. I I wouldn't want to rank them, uh, but uh, we've seen armaments from, from Egypt, we've seen from the Emirates, we've seen uh, Turkish equipment there, Turkey, Russian. Tur of course, Turkey's a NATO partner. Uh, correct. And right. they're supporting the, uh, the uh, GNA, but they have their own reasons for doing that, which is not exactly the same reasons that we are trying to get peace in that region. Yes, well, uh, paradoxically, uh, while we have work to discourage uh, Turkish deployments uh, to Libya. Uh, their deployments have, in fact, uh, reestablished the status quo in Tripoli, whereas Heftar, backed by the Wagner forces, were making incre incremental advances. Uh, the deployment of Turkish forces have slowed that advance and have created an environment that has served to be more conducive for and, negotiations. And that brings you to the issue of you get to a ceasefire, is the ceasefire the current lines or do you go back to the April lines, uh, which, I un, which I fully understand this, the importance of trying to establish, uh, don't give reward for bad behavior in a ceasefire. So uh, are you saying that we support what Turkey is doing right now in Libya? Uh, no, I'm not. We tried to discourage them from doing so. If, if I could just add on that, um, yes, we have engaged with Turkey on this, that, that we want all sides to de-escalate. Turkey has publicly committed to the Berlin process and to the commitments there. 
President Erdogan stated publicly that their intervention and deployments were a direct response to Russia's use of Wagner forces that further escalated and destabilized the situation. Um, and so Turkey has publicly committed to a ceasefire, and we are engaged in that discussion. And to your earlier point, Senator, I think you, you are right. The Wagner forces in particular, by some media accounts, are over 2,000 uh, soldiers with heavy equipment, uh, are, are the key, one of the key factors in destabilizing the situation. So, so I'm trying to so you see just about every participant's violating the arms embargo. Uh, and I, what is your optimism that if we are able to get a peace process moving, that there won't be significant efforts to avoid the embargo? And what will the U.S. role be if a peace process moves forward? Are we expected to be an active participant in that? Uh, Senator, we, we support the U.N.-led process, uh, but the, we're into burden sharing as well. Uh, the Europeans have indicated that if there is enforcement of the ceasefire, and I'll, I'll turn this over to, to Chris here, but uh, that they would they would take the lead here. Um, this is we're not going to have U.S. troop deployments. So our position uh, will be pretty much what it has been up to now: is that we'll voice our concerns, our support, but it will we will not be putting our resources, particularly our military resources, behind any type of a solution here. So that do we expect that Russia will also do what the United States is doing and remove itself from that region? So let me let me take that last question first. Then um, I think Darren is. It was challenge. sarcastic. I must yeah, have no, I, I understand that, sir, and I think that's really one of the challenges. We've seen a, a repeated pattern of behavior that, while Russia publicly commits to uh, international obligations to end conflicts, whether it's the Minsk agreements for Ukraine, uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2254 for or for Syria, or its own self-generated Astana process with Turkey and Iran it does not honor its international commitments on a repeated basis. That's why we will keep pressure on Moscow to publicly attribute and hold them to account. And that's, my, I guess, my point. Look, we, none of us want our soldiers, uh, we want burden sharing, we want Europe to pick up the needs. But when the United States is not there, as Senator Menendez says, it's filled, the void is filled, and not by our friends. So do we really think we can enforce a, a peace process uh, in regards to Libya, knowing what Russia is going to be doing without the U.S. being, having a, some active role in determining how to enforce? I think we can. I think what, what we've seen since the Berlin process, we had uh, a, an immediate spike, and since then we've had a de-escalation of sorts, where you see uh, some of those violators of the arms embargo pull back from the front lines uh, to give this uh, process a chance. So I, I don't want to come across at all as optimistic. This is a war, civil war, 11 years in the making, and it's going to be very difficult. Uh, but there is a, a glimmer of, of hope that, uh, that the ceasefire will, will take hold. Thank, thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Perdue, you're going to have to wait. That we're, we're out of time on the floor on the first vote. So that we're is perfect. Down and thank you very much. On one and two, I'll but be We're going to be anxiously awaiting your questions when we get back. To, so we, uh, the committee will be at ease, subject to the call of the chair. Committee will come to order. Senator Perdue, you're up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Is this hazing for the new member? I'm it is. Uh, thank you for your forbearance. Um, I want to talk about two things very quickly. Um, the last time I was with uh, President El Sisi, he was most concerned in Libya 
about the Muslim Brotherhood. This is an ongoing thing with him. But first, I want to talk about Russia very quickly. Uh, if you could be, I'd like both of you to give me your responses on um, the Russian activity. We've talked about Wagner and, and their um, uh, effort there, the mercenary, uh, the proxies that uh, Russia is there. If you look at what a little bit of history between Murmansk, uh, Kaliningrad, uh, Sevastopol, and now Latakia and Tortoise, we see that they have been beneficiaries of this nefarious activity, three in just the last, what, five to six years, uh, 10 years anyway, <clears throat> between uh, the Crimea at Sevastopol and now uh, Latakia and, and Tortoise. Uh, when I look at Tripoli, this is an easy thing for them. It doesn't cost a lot of money. They've encouraged this nefarious activity. What is their uh, end game, and how do you suggest that we and the allies actually stand up there? There's a limit to uh, to uh, sanctions. Um, I understand, you know, we're sanctioning pretty much everybody in Russia right now. How much further can we go, and, and are we not in an in a area of diminishing return with that alone? And don't we need uh, a little more uh, cohesive approach from NATO, all the allies uh, with regard to this nefarious activity uh, that Russia is engaged in, particularly with Wagner over the last uh, three or four years, or two years? Thank you, Senator. Um, I, think, I think you're absolutely correct that we see a, gr a growing pattern of Russian behavior here. Um, I think in terms of Russian objectives, one is they want to demonstrate that they're a, a global power and that no international conflict will be settled without them having a seat at the table and their interests, however they may define them in that conflict, uh, being acknowledged and, and taken care of. Uh, particularly with regard to, to the Libya conflict, uh, we see Russia intend to you're correct, uh, secure itself a military foothold on NATO's southern flank, on the southern part of the Mediterranean, and as well as to gain control over Libya's natural resources, again, to serve its own narrow political and economic interests. Uh, you are correct that um, while we have used sanctions, they are one tool out of many that we need to use, all our means of diplomatic information and economic power in order to deter Russia from aggressive behavior. So we have done a lot of work at NATO in terms of raising efforts to counter Russian aggression. Sorry to interrupt, uh, but it, the, their gray war, it just doesn't seem to me that the sanctions have, much, have had much impact on their gray effort. It, it, some, some elements of it make it more difficult for Russia to operate. I mean, they need to be able to move personnel and funds, and we can make it much more difficult for them to operate. We can publicly attribute the work that they're doing so that they do not have deniability, and that remains a key uh, tool in our toolbox to counter Russian aggression. And you're correct. We need to continue to work with our allies and partners, particularly in Europe, to raise the cost for Russia, to deter Russia, and to call out their bad behavior. I agree 100% with what Chris said, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, it's a malign actor, um, and it would be helpful if we could expand what is now a unilateral san sanction to a, a multilateral, uh, much more effective, I think, if we had Europe on board. Well, they, they just don't seem to be deterred. These things keep falling in their lap. Latakia and Tortoise, I'm very concerned about. Um, they're not down on the horn, but uh, this southern flank of uh, Europe really concerns me. I think they have their eyes on Tripoli. Um, El Sisi is very concerned about the Muslim Brotherhood um, and their part in the GNA. Talk to me just a little bit about, is this really a danger? Is this a force? Compare it to what ISIS is doing, or is ISIS on the rebound there? And is Russia playing, just a three-part question, is Russia benefiting regardless of, of the outcome? Are they, do they get just as much benefit from an instability there versus a real outcome? Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll talk about the 
the Islamist question here. Uh, to be sure, the GNA does have ties with Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated militia um, in Tripoli. Uh, but I would also add, uh, as we heard earlier, I think from Senator Menendez, uh, that Haftar has his own different flavor of Islamists. There are Salafists that mm -hmm. he is aligned with Salafist militia. Uh, this is something what, that will be determined, I think, in political talks between the LNA and GNA about the status of uh, Islamists in the country, uh, what uh, what their role will be, what the role of political Islam will be in that in that country. Um, as for ISIS, uh, you know that in September uh, we had drone strike in South uh, South Libya that killed some 43 members of, of ISIS. Uh, this is uh, an ongoing problem and something that. Uh, is easier to contend with from U.S. point of view, uh, or would be easier to contend with uh, if there was no war in Libya. If we had uh, U.S. troops and assets stationed in Libya. So I'm out of time, but you would agree that the instability there does create a fertile um, atmosphere for ISIS recruiting and ISIS growth? Uh, it does. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here. You both talked about how it would be more effective, our sanctions regi regime would be more effective if the Europeans were um, better participants in that. What are we doing to try and encourage Europe to um, participate, and why are they unwilling to do that? So, uh, Senator, you are correct. Our, our sanctions are most effective when we can do that in partnership with our allies. That, that enables uh, both uh, to deter the behavior, but to send a clear message to Moscow in particular that the transatlantic community is united on whatever the issue is, whether it's Ukraine, Syria, or Libya. Um, we have engaged with, with European partners. We had a team in, in Brussels uh, just in January to share more information on uh, these private military contractors and our concerns there. So why are they so unwilling? Do they feel like there are benefits to their uh, companies in European countries because they're benefiting from the sale of arms? Uh, they have not expressed that view to us. Uh, I think they move in a, in a more uh, deliberative process. Uh, they, we in, in Brussels have not always moved in sync. Uh, our authorities enable us to move quicker in some cases to impose sanctions than, than the EU process for imposing sanctions, but we are working very closely with them on that. So how optimistic should we be that they're actually going to come along? And how how much of a deterrent is it that um, the United States did not consult with them or let them know about the strike against Soleimani, did not let them know about our withdrawal of troops from Syria, have, been, have not been a very good partner in terms of what our activities have been with regard to what the Europeans are doing? How much is that affecting our ability to get them to join us? So uh, particularly with regard to Russia and, and then more broadly with, with the Berlin process as well, I think they've seen U.S. leadership. We have a good uh, track record of close cooperation on a range of these issues. Our, our European allies see the threat the same way. We, we just use some, at times, different tools to, to, to address the threat. Uh, so we are very focused on that, and we will continue to pursue that with our allies. Do you agree with that, Mr. Shanker? I do. Um, you were talking, I want to follow up on Senator Perdue's questions about ISIS, because 
um, southern Libya has been exploited by parties to the conflict, as you both pointed out. It's destabilized by a variety of groups. So um, what more should we be doing? And earlier this month, we heard reports that Turkey sent over 4,000 foreign militants from Syria to fight on behalf of um, the GNA in Tripoli, and that dozens of them are extreme, at least dozens of them are extremist affiliated. So how concerned we, should we be about Turkey's involvement there and the potential for the Turks to be encouraging, whether um, deliberately or not, the reformation of ISIS and the growth? Senator, if I can touch on the first part of that, the, uh, the issue of the persistence of ISIS uh, in Libya. Uh, this is an enduring problem, and the best way to solve that is to support an end to the fighting and to end to the civil war. Uh, and that way we can uh, be better placed uh, to have a more hands-on approach, uh, closer proximity to the problem. Um, but this is a problem in the Sahel um, states that border Libya as well. Uh, the way we are dealing with this right now is we are in discussions with our allies about uh, NATO Middle East or NATOMI or NATO me, uh, and uh, in terms of expanding uh, NATO presence, working with our allies, the French and others, on countering uh, these type of threats in North Africa as well as in the Sahel. And, and Senator, specifically with regard to Turkey and, and, um, and the challenge of terrorism, um, Turkey is a key NATO ally and a critical partner in the coalition to defeat ISIS. So we continue to engage with them uh, on that. Uh, we've expressed our concerns uh, and the need to de-escalate in Libya, but, but they remain a, a vital partner in the campaign against ISIS. So do you discount the reports that suggest that some of those Turkish soldiers who went into Libya are actually um, extremists who are fighting with them, just as we saw the Turkish uh, troops that moved into Syria included militias that were extremists? Again, uh, I don't have any information specifically on that, but we have engaged with Turkey to de-escalate uh, and to engage, and, and they have expressed both publicly and privately their commitment to the Berlin process and to, to a, a peaceful resolution of the conflict in Libya. Um, I appreciate what they have said publicly. I hope that we will continue to press them on who actually is being sent to Libya to fight and what their affiliations are, because clearly Turkey's talking out of both sides of its mouth. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Sheehan. My turn? Mr. Rubio. All right. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it very much. Uh, I'm sorry to be late to the hearing. This may have already been asked before, but, but it's, it's such a unique mess we have on our hands uh, with regard to all the different sides involved in that conflict, um, and in particular, um, now the sort of Turkish involvement uh, that from open source reports, I read something again this morning, it appears to be that, that some of their engagement um, is... Uh, via um, the regular forces, potentially some of their engagement is also via um, aligned groups that may or may not have, have been a part of their efforts in Syria. And, and then the reverse of that is 
these reports in the media about the, the Russian contractor role and that some of the people, at least that I've read about in the, some article last night, that are operating on the Wagner side are not necessarily even Russians or, or, or Europeans. They're, I guess, soldiers for hire in the region. It's, uh, I guess I'm trying to fully understand what our view is or what our best assessment is of what the Russian intention is with regards to Libya. Is it basically to reach an outcome that would allow them to have influence in the future of the country? It sounds like it's another one of those proxy plays where they've been able to outsource the operation to a private contractor that they deny having links to uh, so they don't have to explain to people back home why some Russian is, is dead. Um, but at the same time, it gives them enough influence over uh, the future outcome of, of the conflict in a way that's beneficial to them, whether it's a seaport access or, or natural resources. So, Senator, you're, you're absolutely correct. I think uh, uh, the Russian intention is, is clear. Uh, they seek to sow chaos. Uh, to inflame conflict to serve their interests. In this in particular case, their interest is to demonstrate that they are a great power and particularly to secure themselves a military presence on NATO's southern flank uh, and to secure access or control over Libya's oil resources. With regard to Russia's use of mercenaries, uh, we need to continue to be clear that there is no plausible deniability. This is a Kremlin-directed organization that, it is that is used by the Kremlin to carry out its very narrow foreign and security policy interests. And we will continue to call them account to account for this, hold them responsible. We've sanctioned them, and we will continue to hold Russia to account. The other thing I'd point to is this appears to now be the second place in which the Turks are find themselves on the opposite side of an increasingly growing uh, conflict from the Russians. So we've seen just in the last 72 hours sort of uh, open uh, conflict with the uh, Assad regime just outside of Idlib. We've seen now in this case that they're increasingly ramping up their, their presence in Libya. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, because at the same time as, as, they've, as they're in conflict with the Russians, they're also engaged in buying weaponry from them and so forth, which has created conflict with the United States. What is the Turkish interest with regards to, what, what, what is their objective in being involved in, in this outcome? So, so Turkey is a key NATO ally. It is a key player in regional security issues. Um, and I think you're correct. They, are, they have both uh, Iran and, and Russia on their near borders and, and, and uh, face a threat from, from those directions. And so we continue to engage with them. Uh, you are correct. Uh, Turkey has just suffered uh, serious losses of its soldiers in Syria at the hands of the Assad regime backed by the Russian government. And so while we have some differences uh, uh, with, with the government in Ankara on, on certain issues, we are engaged with them because we take some their security concerns seriously. What is, their, what is their rationale for Libya being a, a place they want to be engaged? So, so President Erdogan was very clear that they deployed force, uh, forces in response to Russia's escalation and its, its massive deployment of Wagner resources. They have publicly committed and privately committed to the Berlin process, to a peaceful settlement of this, uh, of this conflict, and they are, they are engaged substantively on that. Uh, and so, in this case, uh, we are engaged with Turkey on that. It's Russia that remains the bad actor. And finally, on what has been the impact on the CT, the counter-terror 
mission in, in Libya, given this uncertainty, particularly with both ISIS and al-Qaeda elements having, at least historically in the past, trying to establish a presence there? I would imagine that the existence of this conflict has, um, in some ways, uh, un potentially undermined those efforts. Thank you, Senator. Uh, in, in our view, it has complicated the counterterrorism campaign. Uh, as I pointed out earlier, we had a strike in September killing 43 members of ISIS in, in South Libya. Uh, we still have allies on the ground who are working with uh, to fight terrorists, but uh, we no longer have a presence on the ground uh, in Libya. Thank you, Senator Rubio. Uh, Mr. Robinson, I uh, uh, back to follow up on a question that Senator Rubio asked. Um, is it your sense that the uh, uh, that the Turks, Turks are figuring out they're holding hands with the wrong person under the table yet? I mean. Uh, you know, this has been very frustrating for a lot of us. We meet with the we meet with the uh, uh, Turkish officials, and I've, I've met with Erdogan myself. And uh, we're it's just uh, in, incredibly frustrating and hard to understand why they have taken up this romance uh, after hundreds of years of uh, uh, of conflict, and uh, they're turning to them instead of to people who are their official allies. And it just, it seems to me at some point in time, they're gonna catch on that, uh, that, that they're making a huge mistake. Is there, is, is uh, that taken, that thought taken road at all with them yet? Have they woken up to that yet? I think you've seen uh, the Turkish government call out Russia for its responsibility on what's happening in Syria and that Russia is not honoring its commitments. This is uh, a continuing problem. Again, we are engaged with, with Turkey. They are a NATO ally and we'll, we, we take their, their threats seriously. But we see a pattern of behavior where Russia does not honor its, its agreements, whether it's the ones they negotiated, for example, Syria with the Astana process. Uh, they, they ultimately... They say one thing, but their actions tell another story. Well, and I, I appreciate your statements about uh, Turkey being an ally, and we know they're an ally, they're an official ally, but they're not acting like an ally in a lot of respects, and I'm thinking particularly about the uh, S-400s, which, which is a major, major issue for us, and uh, we haven't been able to get by that yet. So anyway, I hope they wake up soon um, and, uh, and come back in the fold. They are, they've been a good ally and an important ally over the years, and it's it's sad to see this thing go in the, the direction it's gone in recent years. So with that, Senator Kane. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and to the witnesses uh, in important hearing. So I, I want to just ask a simple one. Is current U.S. policy to support the GNA or the LNA or both? Thank you, Senator. We recognize the GNA, the government of Libya. The U.S. and the U.N. both recognizes the GNA as the legitimate government of Libya at this point. Correct. And does that mean that is who we support right now? Uh, yes, we support the GNA, but we support a negotiated solution, taking into account- You're trying to find a way to end the civil war, and how can we be helpful in that? Right, and that includes necessarily dealing with the LNA. Why, why did the U.S. participate in April and May in blocking the UN Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire, calling for the LNA to stop, uh, you know, proceeding and waging war uh, against the GNA? It's a good question. Because we there did are, that. It, it, I mean, <clears throat> Britain put a resolution on the table to try to stop the LNA's waging war against the GNA, and by the accounts that I've read, it was the US and Russia 
that blocked that Security Council resolution. Well, I don't know why Russia blocked the resolution. I can right. tell you that there are so many of these resolutions that we work on uh, that have no teeth, uh, that don't have any meaning, um, and we don't want to sign do, on to do, meaningful do you, resolutions. Do you know, I mean, I know you're citing generally concerns, but, but do you know specifically why in this case, uh, because in this case the reporting was that Secretary Pompeo spoke favorably about the resolution, but then quickly thereafter, uh, the White House urged the U.S. mission at the U.N. to block the resolution, and folks were very surprised about it. Russia had asked for conditions on the resolution, um, and those conditions were not given, but the U.S. actually was the one that raised the veto threat. Senator, I, specific I, I can't, I can't specifically comment on that, but I can tell you there was— And that's because you, don't, you do not know I do the not answer know. to the question. Uh, but what, what I will tell you is that I've worked on other resolutions, um, for example, ceasefire resolution around the time of the Eid. Can, can I just, I, 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 you, have a just deep, to, you have a deep background, but I don't, I don't believe the, you know, the challenges with other resolutions is relevant to the question about why we blocked this one. So I'm going to move to a, uh, just a, a second point. Um, just in the last couple of days, uh, Virginia citizens and American citizens have filed a big human rights case. Uh, in the District of Columbia against Field Marshal Haftar, who is a, at some points in the past, has been a Virginia resident. So they argue that that gives them jurisdiction against him. So I just, you know, it seems as I've followed this from last spring to now, there's maybe been a little bit of an evolution of thinking that, well, maybe Haftar was okay, or maybe we should, you know, reach out to him, or m maybe we should block the ceasefire resolution. Uh, to be more favorable to the LNA or hopefully to get their help on anti-terrorism or others. There's been a rethinking of that, which I think is smart. Um, we have recognized the GNA as the legitimate government. We should be doing things to shore them up, not weaken them. Um, I, don't, I don't think being involved in peace discussions to try to bring about in, in ways we can and others, get kick out proxies in the Civil War, that's the kind of thing we should be doing. But we sort of undermined the government that we recognize uh, when we took steps that were seen broadly as puffing up the LNA, including blocking the Security Council resolution. And so hopefully that time of sending the mixed messages is over, and we send the clear message that we support the GNA, we want them to be stronger. And, and I hope that that's the message that is now being sent uh, unequivocally and loud and clear by the administration. Senator, it is. Um, as for uh, Hiftar and what's happened in your district, I have to refer you to DOJ. Uh, right, right. Yeah, that's just more public information. But with that, thank you, Mr. Chair. I'll yield it back to you, Senator Rubio and Senator Menendez. All right, uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for being here today. Uh, I wanted to um, stay for a moment on uh, our policy with respect to General Haftar. Um, and. Uh, ask you a very specific question about uh, how we can try to make clear which side we are on. You've obviously gotten a good number of questions, deservedly so, from members of this committee who are confused and who um, reflect a general confusion around the world about uh, where the United States stands, and I thank you for your very clear testimony today. Um, but uh, we have a tool at our disposal uh, that has not yet been engaged, and that is CATSA sanctions. Um, uh, CATSA says that the president shall impose 
sanctions on individuals who knowingly engage in a significant transaction with a person that is part of or operates for or on behalf of the defense or intelligence sectors of the Russian Federation. Uh, the Wagner Group uh, has been designated um, uh, under CATSA, and they are clearly in business with Haftar. Um, so um, are we planning uh, on sanctioning Haftar? Is that a discussion that's underway? And if we are not planning to do so, why not? Just a general comment uh, overall. The administration is fully committed to implementation of CATSA sanctions. As you well know, Senator, um, we are very engaged with this committee on that issue. Um, we, the administration has sanctioned over nearly 200, uh, 350 Russian individuals and entities. But sanctions are always one tool in the toolbox, and they need to be used to achieve um, uh, change behavior and achieve a specific outcome. And, it, and it's an issue of choosing uh, of how we apply the tool and at the right time. Senator, thank you. Uh, on CATSA, uh, well, let me get back first. We have sanctioned a number of individuals in Libya under UN authorities. We have a similar EO that, that echoes a, a UN authority for undermining stability in Libya. We've done that too, including the Speaker of the House of Representatives of Libya has been, has been designated. Um, so we use these tools when we, we think it appropriate. Um, right now, HIFTAR, is participating as a member of the five plus five uh, mill to mill committee, cooperating with the UN. Uh, we want to encourage this, um, and we're hoping that he goes to the next step uh, in these talks, which is the political talks. Um, I can't get into the internal deliberation, though, of what we're talking about, designating him or not. Um I understand the balance. Uh, I think it would be important to have these internal discussions, in part because the statute is not permissive. Uh, and so if he, in fact, is um, operating on, uh, if he's operating in coordination with an entity that has been designated, I don't know that there's a lot of discretion involved uh, there. Um, I wanted to get in a question about the UAE. Um, as far as I can tell, the, your testimony, uh, Secretary Shanker, today is the first time that the administration has acknowledged um, that the UAE is a bad actor here in the sense that they have clearly, according to many reports, um, including from the UN Nation, United Nations Panel of Experts, been in violation of the arms uh, embargo. Um, and they are one of, if not the primary actor, uh, funding um, much of uh, the activity inside uh, Libya today. Um, and yet we're still in business with the UAE. Uh, the administration uh, used emergency powers to sell $8 billion worth of arms to them in 2019. 7% of all of our arms sales are to uh, the Emiratis. So we have levers um, that are available to us to play with the Emiratis, um, both in public statements and in the me mechanics of how we do business with them. But it's just been striking to me that we have this rhetoric about trying to um, put pressure on outside actors who are um, supporting uh, uh, destabilization inside Libya, and yet with the Emiratis, it doesn't seem like we're really willing to go to the mat. We're not willing to tell them if you continue to fund uh, Heftar and others will, won't sell you arms, and we don't seem to be willing to call them out with the exception of your statements today. T tell me why I'm wrong about that. 
Well, in fact, the, the secretary called the UAE as well as Turkey and Egypt and others out uh, in Berlin at the Berlin conference, so uh, we're not shy about pointing uh, this out. Uh, we do believe, however, that diplomatic engagement with them will be more likely uh, to get better results in the long run, and they appear to be cooperating now and adhering to the, the framework of uh, the Berlin process. Um, we also have a broad range of equities with the Emiratis, frankly, right now as well. Do you, have you come to the conclusion that they're in violation of the arms embargo? Uh, I think that would be a, a question for the Office of, of Legal Counsel. All right. I would contest the fact that they are cooperating. Um, I think they continue to be in violation of that uh, embargo. I'm happy to follow up with them. I just would urge you to use some firmer measures. Um, I don't think you're getting what you need from the Emiratis right now, and I don't know that these quiet diplomatic back channels are going to get you there. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. The ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me just make a comment for the record to both of you. You can take it back to the department. As one of the authors of CATSA, it is not voluntary. It is not discretionary. It is mandatory. I think the administration thinks that it can ignore Congress with impunity, violate the congressional not only intent, but also the actual wording of the law, and that will have consequences. Listening to the president's defense team, one of the consequences they say that Congress can have is to hold up nominations. Well, if that's what we have to do to have uh, faithfulness to the law, uh, including CATSA, that's what we will do. So this is not a question of discretion. Uh, Secretary Shanker, uh, let me ask you something. With reference to going back to Senator Kane's questions of the resolution, that we joined Russia uh, in vetoing. What message do you think it sends to the international community and our partners that we joined Russia to defeat a British initiative? Well, we were engaged with the British and the French and all our partners at the UN before to try and improve this resolution, but there have been so many that have been tabled, including one that I started to explain to Senator Kane, uh, including one before the Eid this year, where we worked maybe five days solid to get an agreed to uh, resolution supporting a ceasefire in Libya. And we finally got the resolution, and it took the, 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 the time it took to get the resolution was five times longer than the ceasefire lasted. Well, we don't consider this productive, spending time on these resolutions that don't accomplish anything. So we want resolutions to have well, then, meaning well, and then to have what, teeth what as is well. it that what what what's our what's our what's our leverage here to produce a resolution that will work if we're not if we're not supporting the British we're joining with the Russians who are a bad actor in Libya do we agree on that Russia's a bad yes. actor in Libya yes okay so Russia's a bad actor in Libya but we join Russia against Britain wow so what's our leverage here I'm trying to understand what our no, leverage is. We're about to sign on to a Security Council resolution on Libya that we have worked with the British and the French that we think is productive, that seems to um, hold to account um, uh, member states that violate the arms embargo, that is more meaningful in a way, and that, uh, as, Ch as Chancellor um, Merkel said, uh, we'll name names. 
Um, we think this is important. We think it's productive. I can't wait to see the naming the names. Let me turn to something else. The Turkish GNO agreement is based on a flawed reading of international law. Our partners, including Greece and Cyprus, Greece a NATO ally, Cyprus part of the European Union, have expressed vocal opposition to this agreement, which also, as I said in my opening statement, undermines U.S. security interests. Will the United States insist that any potential future Libyan government eschew the underpinnings of this agreement and work with other Eastern Mediterranean countries to comply with international law and peaceful energy exploration? So thank you, Senator. Um, regarding the maritime delimitation and this agreement, um, we've called on all parties to refrain from actions that risk heightening tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean at this very sensitive time. These developments, as you've rightly pointed out, highlight the risk that the Libyan conflict will take on a wider regional dimensions and the urgent need for all the parties to work towards an agreed solution. And, so, and the announcement of the delimitation memorandum has raised tensions in the regions, and we are engaging with all the parties to de-escalate. Okay, well, that's very nice. Uh, all the parties. But there's only one set of parties that's creating this problem. It's Turkey making this outrageous declaration that this strip that goes through international waters and actually uh, lands of Greece, uh, for example, as well as Cyprus, is somehow well. So why is it that we say on all the parties, what are the other parties doing? They're not doing anything except being the victims of a determination that creates into, into, into conflict their exclusive economic zones. Why, why do we say all the parties when in fact we know there's, an, uh, there's a party here creating a real problem? That's Turkey. Senator, we, we, we don't want the tensions to escalate. We don't want any country to take rash, act, rash actions that would further inflame tensions. And so, again, we are engaged diplomatically with, with, with everybody involved in order to de-escalate this But But who, who did something here? Did Greece do something? Senator. Did Cyprus do something? No, Senator. Oh, thank you. Okay, so by process of elimination, Turkey is the one who did it. Yeah, we call on all parties. Final question. Libya has become a transit country for hundreds of thousands of migrants, refugees, and trafficking victims. And we all recall the horrific stories about actual slave markets from a few years ago. What steps are we taking to promote refugee and migrant uh, protections, particularly with uh, the Europeans? Thank you. Well, in terms of, of Libya, is what I can address first here, Senator, is that we last year, I think, gave $30 million to the UNHCR and the International Organization of Migration to help ameliorate conditions on the ground. Uh, to be sure, the uh, situation for migrants and refugees is deplorable. They're, exposed, they're vulnerable, highly vulnerable, subject to torture, sexual violence, um, trafficking, arbitrary detention, et cetera. Um, we have worked, uh, at least with the, with the Europeans, there is a, an agreement between uh, the Libyan Coast Guard uh, and the Italian Navy uh, that has just been renewed, a memorandum of understanding um, on how to better treat uh, that involves how to uh, how to do these patrols and how to uh, includes elements and how to better treat uh, migrants. But certainly, this is a significant concern. There, uh, it, Libya is a, a both a destination and a point of transit for for migrants, and uh, and is a continuing point of concern. Although I must say, um, from in 2019, there was something like 120 
1,000 uh, refugees and migrants from Libya to Europe, meaning to Italy and, um, and Malta. Uh, in 2019, it was only something like 15,000. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez. Um, thank you for turning our committee's attention to Libya and the longstanding uh, security and humanitarian challenges there. Um, in uh, last November, uh, I introduced the Libya Stabilization Act along with my colleagues, uh, Senators Graham and Murphy and Rubio, uh, and it's my hope uh, to discuss for a few minutes some of the principal aims of it. Um, at the top of the list is uh, the lack of a clearly articulated U.S. policy towards Libya, um, and the point of this bill is to sort of bring high-level attention to that process and to get us to a policy that's specifically focused on creating conditions on the ground to stabilize the country and ensure a long-term peace. And so this hearing is an important step towards articulating uh, some of the core elements of that. I think a critical place to start is the actual enforcement of the UN arms embargo, uh, which has been in place nearly a decade but is routinely violated. And I think the United States should use its considerable influence and leverage to deter continued violations. Um, if I could, uh, Mr. Assistant Secretary, um, does the administration have a strategy for stepping up enforcement of the arms embargo? Um, I appreciate that there have been statements at the United Nations. I appreciate uh, resolutions. But how will we move towards actual deterrence and compliance? Uh, thanks, Senator. We have been encouraging our partners uh, and those who are actively involved in the conflict of Libya to, uh, to step back, to discontinue this, uh, this uh, foreign interference, uh, mercenaries, et cetera, and the sending of weapons there. Uh, if we do anything, um, we believe that, uh, first of all, that diplomatically we are in a better place now moving forward. Uh, and there has been a, a somewhat of a de-escalation de on the ground in terms of where these munitions are placed, uh, what countries they're in in the region, et cetera. Uh, that said, um, we would want to do something that is multilateral, not unilateral. Well, my concern is um, that we are an essential party. And an absence of focus, prioritization, clarity um, will lead to continued drift. Um, and, and there, frankly, as um, my friend and colleague, Senator Menendez's question implied, um, different context, he was talking Turkey and uh, maritime delimitations, but there is a principal actor here who, through the Wagner Group, has been interfering, uh, not just as you mentioned previously, Deputy Assistant Secretary, not, not just in Syria, not just in Ukraine, in the Central African Republic, in Mozambique, and more recently here in Libya. Uh, and I suspect that they are the party least interested um, in having pleasant, calm, diplomatic conversations about the UN arms embargo, what additional leverage do you think we could or should apply multilaterally that might deter Russian violations of the UN arms embargo? Well, I'll, I'll just say one word, and, and, and Chris can go from there. But uh, we have encouraged our European allies, I have encouraged them, all parties at the Berlin process, to designate Wagner as well. So it is not a unilateral sanction. Mm -hmm. I think that would be most effective. Senator, um, uh, we have been direct with the Russians in calling them out for their actions, both publicly and privately. Secretary Pompeo, Ambassador Sullivan in Moscow, we have raised specifically our concerns so that there is no plausible deniability for Russia's actions and that we hold them to account wherever these private military contractor, contact, contractors 
or other proxy actors operate, and that we hold Russia responsible. As I've already said, we, we have sanctioned Wagner, we have expanded the sanctions against Yevgeny Prigozhin, and we're working very diligently uh, to ensure that, that Brussels takes similar actions. What, why are we getting resistance or lack of response or engagement from our European allies who are more directly and intimately um, at risk here and see the destabilization and see the projection of power by Russia? Um, uh, they, Europe has different authorities for operating. Uh, they have different standards for imposing sanctions. Um, and so it, it is, a, is at many times a longer, slower process than frankly we would like, but we try to work very closely. We have a robust information sharing process with our European partners. And, and there's, there's real concern and an awareness of the threat Russian proxy actors pose, and you are correct, across sub-Saharan Africa and, and in the Western Hemisphere and elsewhere. But one component of the bill I mentioned is to specifically require um, Department of State and Department of Defense to have a joint strategy for countering Russian uh, aggression, engagement, uh, influence in Libya, particularly because, as you uh, called out in your opening comments, um, they may well be seeking not just access to resources, but also critical basing and refueling opportunities. Um, last, I think, is the dire humanitarian situation, which is equally alarming. It's just the third question I'm getting to, uh, not the least concerning. Uh, as you said, some 2,000 Libyans, hundreds of civilians have been killed and more than 150,000 people displaced. Uh, and we've seen detention centers uh, and uh, aid workers attacked and security um, undermined. Um, the Libya Stabilization Act would authorize funds to address the humanitarian crisis and to help unify some of Libya's governing and financial institutions that are currently uh, scattered, which I think could be a critical step in restoring security and services. Do you agree this would be a wise investment for the United States as we continue to try and lead with our allies in resolving Libya's conflict? I do, and I'll look forward to discussing the, the bill with you. Um, I think it's important legislation. I think that uh, we have to continue to make investments in, in Libya. Any closing comment you'd like to make, Deputy Assistant Secretary? Uh, Senator, you, did, you raised one point about uh, the importance of, uh, of joint action and, and a joint plan, and I will say Russia has been successful in its use of proxy actors to carry out malign influence operations because it's brought a whole-of-government approach. Yep. This administration has brought together a whole-of-government approach to counter Russian influence and aggression, and we are putting that plan into action, including to counter Russia in Libya and elsewhere where we find Russian aggression. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think, frankly, uh, we need not just a whole-of-government approach, but a whole-of-government approach closely coordinated with our trusted allies and relationships with those allies that allow us to sustain this kind of important work. Um, as you've laid out in Libya, foreign interference, humanitarian strife, the implications of this conflict for our CT efforts, for security across the whole Sahel, uh, and the political stability, frankly, of our vital European allies are just a few of the reasons why uh, I'm grateful to the chair and ranking for this hearing on Libya. Um, it reinforces my belief the United States um, is absolutely um, an essential actor, and we could play an outsized and positive role in stabilizing Libya and advancing our national interests. So thank you, and I hope uh, we'll proceed to a markup of the bill. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you to everybody who participated in this hearing. Senator Kuhn, as far as your bill is concerned, uh, we thank you and Senator Rubio for this uh, uh, piece of legislation. As you know, it's in staff right now being worked over to try to get to a try to get to a yes for everybody, and uh, as you know, as we try to move things uh, 
towards the middle of the road, we, we do better if we can get everybody on board on it. So that, that is an, effort, an ongoing effort right now, and uh, it is a good faith effort, and uh, we'll, we'll try to get it up so we can, uh, we can get the bill. Uh, a sincere thank you to both of our witnesses uh, for being here today. Uh, it was very helpful. For the information, members' record will remain open until the close of business on Friday. If indeed there are uh, QFRs, we'd ask the witness to respond as rapidly as possible so that we can close the record. And uh, thanks uh, to the committee, and this meeting is now adjourned.